Hi, I'm Zach. Uh, I'm the technical something here. Uh, I produce the media and help out with the tech team. And this is my wife, Sarah, and she helps out with high school ministries here. And uh, our scripture reading this morning um, is found in John 15:5 through 17. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So we are in this series in the last day of Jesus that I'm calling Knocked Down But Not Out. And today I want to think about this question of how you can tell in this world when you might be knocked down, but you're not out in terms of your walk with with Jesus. So I will never forget the first hospital visit I ever made as a pastor. I was a youth pastor. I see Pastor Mark Fields. I was younger than you, a lot younger than you uh, when I was doing this. I was probably Blake's uh, age at the time. And one of the most uh, active and joy-filled people in our church um, became very, very sick. They didn't think he would make it. And so the senior pastor who was out of town gave me a call. And he said, Greg, I think you need to go over and visit him. And he said, but don't, don't worry about it. Just read some scripture and pray. And, and, and if he's conscious, he, he'll in, encourage you. This will be an easy one. So I went over there and it was not an easy one. Uh, so I did. I read him some scripture and I prayed and I turned to walk out when, when Bill said to me, uh, Pastor Greg, could you stay? Could I talk with you about something? I have a heavy burden and I've had it for a long time. I don't know who else to talk to. And then he went on to tell me, he said, as much as going to church has been the center of my life ever since I was a boy, standing where I am right now, I'm not sure I'm ready to meet God. Uh, he, went on, he went on to tell me that he had prayed, you know, the prescribed prayer that we often have in, in a church, uh, asking Jesus into his life when he was a, a boy, a Sunday school teacher, had led him. Uh, and then when he got into high school, he went to a high school camp, 
And when they called people to go forward, as, as we sometimes do, he went forward and prayed the same prayer just to make sure that he was saved. But I'll never forget Bill telling me that two things were plaguing him at the end of his life. One was that there was still sin in his life that he just didn't seem to be able to overcome. And number two, that he had doubts. And I think a part of the doubt was related to the sin that was still in his life. And a part of it was that he had never had one of those burning bush kind of experiences with God. You know, those undeniable kinds of things that occasionally you'll hear people talking about in a church. I will tell you, using the phrase of Jesus, uh, that day when I was in the hospital with him, his heart was troubled. He was afraid. So now that I've been a pastor for so long, I'll just tell you honestly, I've had a number of conversations like this with, with church people near the ends of their lives. But I've got to say this too. I've had many, 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 I'll use many, many times, <laughs> more conversations that were much more like the one that I've told you about that I had with my father just before Christmas. When he, he shared with me so, so compellingly, Greg, don't worry about me. Uh, I know the Lord. I, I'd watched my dad all these years uh, get up in the morning and he talked to the Lord. He, he walked with the Lord. He was, uh, so, in fact, uh, the last message he sent to me was sent through uh, his doctor. And I don't think she was a believer. But she called me up uh, and she said, your dad said to tell Greg, tell him, I know the Lord and he's calling me home. Uh, now, I'll just ask you, do you think it really is possible to have that kind of certainty about your relationship to the eternal God? Amen. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul had that. You see it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, the Lord, the righteous judge, will receive me. He will reward me. It's not just for me, but for all. And you wonder, well, yeah, for him. He was an apostle. Of course, it's for him. But the for all part, is it for me? So, I read the Gospel of John. And one of the things, as we come to John 15, the text that Sarah and Zach read for us, one of the things that hits me is that Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples knew when he was gone that they were rightly related to him through faith. I mean, that was one of the things he wanted to make sure of. And I know this too, that John himself, one of the disciples who was there, he wanted to make sure of that too. Um, have you seen it? I'll, I'll put these two verses back to back. He tells us why he wrote the gospel. He told us why he wrote a later letter. In writing about why he'd written this gospel, John, the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, he said, okay, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God so that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why he wrote the gospel of John. Later, uh, in writing to people who are claiming to believe, he would say, okay, I've written this letter for this reason. First John, chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. So today, I just want to come back to that very basic question. I think a senior pastor needs to do this regularly with the church. Very basic question. How do you know? that you have eternal life. I see it's a part of what Jesus talked with his disciples about on that last day of his life. And the thing that is interesting for me is that he didn't talk about this in the way that we usually do in churches like ours. 
we, we usually point people back to something that may have happened in the future. Jesus talked about it in a different way, and that's what I want to show you. Um, now, listen carefully. What I'm going to talk to you about today is not how you become a Christian, uh, how, how you are saved. That is through faith in Jesus. I'll tell you, you repent of your sins, and, and you say, does somebody, anybody really want these? And Jesus says, I'll take them. You repent of them. You, you ask him to forgive you. He does. And then you ask him into your life. You believe in him. You become a follower of Jesus. You are saved not by works, but by faith in him and what he has done. But what I want to talk to you about is not how you are saved, but how you know. Are there evidences, evidences that should point to the fact that you and I are actually alive to God? And that'll take us back to the vineyard. Last week I showed you a, a picture of a, of a Judean vineyard, but it's, it's one in the present tense. I, I don't know that it looked like this 2,000 years ago, but it at least gives you a picture to, to think about this. So Jesus had been talking on this last day of his life uh, with his, uh, well, first 12 and then 11 disciples after Judas had left about the most important things about living for him, how we should think, how we should, should walk, how we should pray. In this, uh, he was doing this on the last day of his life. How we should live until he comes back again. Um, but he, he looked like he was at the end of his teaching, at the end of chapter 14, but he wasn't. So they, they finished eating in the upper room. They come down, they go into the streets of Jerusalem, they walk there in Judea, and I picture a vineyard being on the hillside and Jesus stopping and saying, I've got to talk to you about some more things right now from right here. I am, it's like this, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Uh, abide in the vine. And you'll bear much fruit. Now, in, in order to really grasp this, I didn't point this out last week, you need to know these, these were Jewish men that he was talking to. And if you read the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament, this notion of the vine fills the Old Testament. It's in the Psalms. It is in Isaiah, it is in Ezekiel, it is in just a number of places. And what, the, way it would, the, the idea of the vine and the vineyard was used was as a picture for those who are the people of God. Uh, those who were in the vine were the people of Israel. The, the vine were those people that God had specially selected, chosen apart from all the other people groups, through whom a Savior would come. And even all the way back uh, to Abraham, uh, through this one who would come, blessing would come to all people groups in the world. Now, now to be in the vine at that point was, was to be a part of the people of Israel. It was a biological relationship. So you're connected through that line that went through Abraham and through the great King David and so forth. But once the one to whom that vine pointed, to whom the, the uh, promises pointed came, the Messiah actually came, the Savior of the world actually came, who was Jesus. Jesus had been saying, now all of that pointed to me. N now that I have come, you don't come to God uh, through being biologically connected to Abraham. You come to God through faith in me. Do you remember John 14 verse 6? I am the way, the truth and the life. No, no one comes to the Father except through me. Through me. You come to the Father. So now, stopping there at that vineyard, you can see what he's saying. He's saying something very similar. I am the vine. So, so in the Old Testament, uh, that language would be the people of God. We would usually use the family of God. How do you get into this eternal family of God? He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who believes in me is the one who knows the life of God.
Alright, so to be rightly connected through faith to Jesus is to be a part of the people of God. And yet a big question comes up in all of this. Because there was one person who sure seemed like he was connected. He, he seemed like the real thing. He seemed like a true believer. In fact, if you would have taken those 12 disciples who were with Jesus and asked, which one of these are you most confident about that this one is truly a believer in Jesus, is really alive to God, you would have picked out this one. That was Judas Iscariot. Remember, he was the most trusted one. He was trusted with the money. Even when he went out that day, do you remember when I talked with you about this? Even when he went out that day, the disciples couldn't imagine that he was going out to do something bad. He's going out to do something good because he, he would, they thought, we might be fakes, he's the real thing. And yet Jesus had to say to him, no, no, he's not. Uh, he, he's not clean. He's not saved. And he went out and did not come back. Which brought up a big question for these disciples. What about us? How can we know? Are, are we truly followers of Jesus, connected to God through faith in him? And, and Jesus, remember in chapter 13, verse 10, he said, Thomas is not clean, he is not, I mean, Judas is not clean, he is not saved, but you are clean. Yes, in this world you'll still get your feet dirty and, and you've got to come back to me to get them washed and using that metaphor. And here again in chapter 15, verse 3, he takes it up again. But you, you are mine, you are clean. No, no, no remain. And, and yet, I'll tell you, ju just like for Bill that I told you about, and really for all of us, if we're really honest, some of the troubles of this world come, the temptations of this world come, and sometimes we wonder, uh, Peter would soon fail. Was he, was he still a Christian? Thomas would have doubt. Was he still a Christian? And so Jesus turns to them and he lets them know some of those evidences that should be there when we're truly alive to God. Evidences that, that I want to tell you about and that should be growing in all, of them, uh, in all of us. What are they? Okay, from Jesus. Evidence number one. Uh, I've called it faith in the present tense. Faith in the present tense. That true believers, according to Jesus, abide in Jesus by faith. Now, I want to put the picture up again of the vine with the branches and, and the fruit. Abide in me. Remain in me. If that branch isn't connected in the present tense to the vine, the thing's going to die. <laughs> Abide in me. So according to Jesus, and, and ten times he uses the same language, you know. So according to Jesus, the evidence of, of true faith in him is not so much the way that we have often talked about it in church. Did you do it back when you were six years old? You know, did, did you believe back then? That, that would be like somebody coming to me and saying, Pastor Greg, um, I'm not sure you're alive. How, how do you know you're alive? And I said, well, wait a minute. I think I have a birth certificate back here somewhere. Oh, yes, here's the birth certificate. I must be alive. Well, now, now yes, I, I should have a birth certificate. There was a time when I was born, and spiritually, there was a time when the life began, when I was born again. And yet you know this, that, that the evidence that I'm alive, do you see any? I mean, can, I mean I'm talking, I'm, I'm, I'm breathing, the things that you do when you're alive, that, that's what's going on. And, and so that's what Jesus is saying here, that when you want to know that you're alive to him, it is faith in the present tense. So mark this down. 
A true believer believes in Jesus. And it continues on. It remains. People alive to God remain in the faith. I'll, I'll use my West Virginia language. Real McCoys. Anybody remember that? You can tell the real McCoy because the real McCoy sticks. Now, that does not mean that genuine believers never fail. Peter failed. Miserably. He denied Jesus. But he came back. And he was received. Uh, it does not mean you and I don't have doubts. In fact, when you think about it, we can only doubt what we actually believe. I'll talk to you about that again someday. It's been too long since I've talked to you about this matter of faith and doubt. See, Thomas doubted, but he came back. And so one of the evidences of this ongoing remaining, it's, it's not that we never fail and never have doubt, but that something happens that brings us back to reaffirm our faith. And we'll see this when we get to chapter 16, the very, very next chapter, that the Holy Spirit is going to do a work, comes into our lives and connects us to Him. And one of the the works, the ministries, the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convict us of sin. So that when we walk away, He draws us back. I know that sounds negative, but it's very positive. He draws us back to Him. The person organically connected to me, Jesus is saying here, knows it because He remains. It is faith in the present tense. Now, the, the real question that so many comes up, because we just philosophize and conceptualize about it, is this one. Is, is it then possible that a genuine uh, believer, like, like a Thomas or, or a Peter, and not talking about, a, uh, um, talking about a, a Judas Iscariot who never was clean, is it possible that they could one day believe and then have a time when they no longer believe and lose eternal life? And you know Christians have disagreed about this uh, from the very beginning of the church. Um, even in our own church, our statement of faith is written to embrace people who have different views of this. Uh, there is an impressive list of brothers and sisters in Christ that I think all of us would consider that who have said, no, absolutely not. Once the life of God started, has started in you, it is his work, it is eternal life. Uh, the ones who have been given to Jesus, the Father gave me, nobody will take them out, out of my hands. That impressive list being all the way back to Augustine and uh, into John Calvin and into John Knox and John Piper. You don't have to be named John to be in that list. It's really sort of the, the list that I'm a part of. That's the way I think about it. You know the real thing because you believe that life comes back. On the other side, there is a very impressive list of brothers and sisters in Christ who have said, no, no, no. And looking especially at the book of Hebrews and, and, and wrestling with that, it is possible to taste of the goodness of the Word of God and then fall away. And that, is, uh, that, that, that list would be people like Jacob Arminius, uh, both John and Charles Wesley, uh, Francis Asbury, great missionaries like E. Stanley Jones. Um, so I'm not going to settle this problem today. I mean, we, we need a Sunday school class where we can talk back and forth about it. But I just want you to know this, that when it comes to this issue, both of those lists will agree with this one thing, uh, that a true believer believes. You can know you are a believer because you believe. So we can pull back and debate all day, and it really is kind of a fun debate, unless you just get mad at one another, a debate about whether you ever did believe. 
But the point I want to come to you today is, is, is to say this. Because a true believer believes, as your senior pastor, I want to ask you, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a believer? Is he, is he, present tense, the Lord and Savior of your life? When that happens, what Jesus is saying here alongside, it's like, it's like a vine to the branch. He says, I'm going to flow through you and I'm going to begin to transform you, which is the second evidence. And the way I put it is this, transforming lives. You see, I, I'm trying to use that verb tense because it is a process. Our lives begin to change and, and just, I try, how can I say it more simply? True believers begin to look and act like Jesus. We begin to look and act like Jesus. But verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, that one is going to bear much fruit. It will happen, he said. So one of the things I love about this is he take, Jesus takes us away from religio religiosity. That, that it is, following Jesus isn't just a, a set of you know, religious philosophy that we believe. It's not just uh, routines that we adopt. Well, I showed up at church, check. I went to camp, check. Uh, you know, that's not the way it, it, it is. A, an organic relationship with him where he comes in and begins, I'll tell you, when the maker of the universe comes into his life, your life through his spirit, he's going to transform every part of your life. Um, so I've written this down so that you wouldn't miss it. The Christian faith then is really a radical redirecting of every thought, attitude, and action. And a redirecting from self-direction and self-serving to self-surrender. We surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Christ lives in me. I no longer live for myself, but for him who died. You see the, this powerful language that, that is there. Um, so I turn from being, when I follow Jesus, I turn from being a self-en. A self-en. Does that make sense? To a Christian. Uh, he lives through me. And what should be happening is the fruit that he talks about is a life that uh, specifically results from Jesus working in and through us. Uh, verse 8, he calls it a life that glorifies God. And, and as I said last week, what should be beginning to happen in your life is that people will continue to see you and see a normal human being, but they're going to begin seeing the differences that Christ and Christ alone makes, and they're the kinds of things that he asks us to do and to be. When you see that happening, you really want to go this way, but you know that this is what would honor Jesus. And you go his way. You'll know you're alive. Otherwise, you would never have done this. Let me tell you this. One of the surest evidences that you're alive to God, that Jesus is present at work in your life, is that you're just going to want to know how he would have you to live. And the way he puts it in verse 10, you're going to want to know his commands. Because you're going to want to please him. And it, it, it troubles people sometimes when they read language like, where is it there in, in verse 10? Where, where he says, as I keep my father's commands and abide in his love. Here's what you need to do. Keep my commands and abide in my love. 
It's just like my relationship to the Father. And, and later he would say, I'll call you friends if you keep my commands. And in our world, that makes no sense. <laughs> because people think, commands? That's, that's what takes my life away from me. That sounds like legalism. That sounds like rules. And that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. The, the idea is when we know who he is and we enter into a relationship with him, the deepest desire of our hearts is to know how he would have us to live and to live that way. Um, all right, I thought, I'm looking up for, if, if there's a haze over your faces here. Let me give you an illustration. Okay, I've used this before, and sometimes the only thing you remember are stories. This is a memorable story. When I first went to college, there was a young man on our dorm floor that I'll call Mike, um, and Mike had never embraced the value of good hygiene. So, so Mike, um, he never shaved, never showered, never seemed to change his clothes. It was, it was disgusting. So we, we, we tried to forcefully tell him, you've got to clean up. Sometimes just in frustration or... Being so young, we would take him, clothes and all, and throw him into the shower. Mostly, we just made fun of him and, and tried, tried to manipulate him through shame and guilt into cleaning up. It did no good. Uh, so we had this idea, and this is the part I think you'll remember. We were college students, so we didn't have much money, but what little money we had, we put together, and we went out and bought him some soap and shampoo and deodorant and even clean underwear, and, and we put it all in a care package and wrapped it, it all up and then sent it through anonymously uh, through the mail. And one of the guys on the floor was working in the mail room, so we knew the day that the package showed up, and we knew we, that he'd picked it up. So we all were up on the, uh, in, on the, in the lounge on our dorm floor, just waiting for him to come. You, you can imagine this, can't you? So in he came. He had this huge smile on his face. He'd open up his package. He says, hey, guys, I just got this, this package of great stuff. But he says, I, I don't use this, and I know you do. So, so he started handing it out all back to us. Uh, it was at that point that we just gave up. Uh, then, then one evening, several months later, we were down in the student center, and the elevator door opened. We were sitting in this seating area, and out walked this guy out of the elevator. He looked a lot like Mike. He must have been his brother. He had all the family traits. But it couldn't be because his hair was cut, didn't have flies swarming around. <laughs> He'd shaved. He had clean clothes on. He smelled good. He looked good. And he spoke to us. And it was Mike. And you know what I thought? What, what has happened? What is powerful enough to change his life? So we sat there in, in awe, and a few minutes later, the elevator door opened, and she walked out. <laughs> her, her name was Amy. Uh, it became clear that Mike had fallen in love with her, and somehow she had fallen in love with Mike. And, <laughs> but... Uh, she had said to him in no uncertain terms, she had commanded him, if you're going to go out with me, you're going to clean up. And he did it. 
and he seemed to be glad about it. And it taught me this lesson, what force and guilt and shame can never produce in a person, love can. Love can. We deeply want to please the people we love. We, we want to know what will deepen that relationship. We don't want to break the relationship by just offending that person. And if that's true about our love of any human being, it should be infinitely more true in our relationship to the one who loved you and me so much that he gave his life, that he gave his life. Of course, the problem on our own in that relationship with him is a love for Jesus should produce that want to. You know, I want to know how he'd have me to live. I want to live for him. But we're so frail, we keep failing anyway, right? And that's what Jesus is getting at. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. You don't go through this alone. He, he gives us not only the desire by, by loving us, compelling us by his love. He gives us the power that our lives can actually become different. One of the surest signs that you are alive to God is that you want to know what his commands are and you long to keep them and you begin to see the power of actually living as he created you to live so I'm going to tell you folks here at Lake Avenue Church if you have come to church and you know there is sin in your life that does not please Jesus and you plan to continue on in that sin tomorrow beware Do not think that you are safe in your relationship to God if you know how he'd have you to live and continue living in sin. See, that, that's what Jesus is getting at here. On the other side, if you come and you know there are areas of your life that are wrong, like Peter did, like Thomas did, and you come back, you're going to find that he receives you. Oh, I could go on and on about this. The, the things that will change. Uh, whereas you once got your thrills by things that were immoral and wrong or thought you were getting them, you'll get your thrills, really, when you, your thoughts become pure. Ah, oh, I wanted to go to that site. Oh, no. Big, oh, hallelujah. Whereas you once were afraid to give witness because of what other people would think of you if you talked about Jesus, you'll begin to find the courage and you'll find such great joy when even with our weakness, you know, <laughs> our words come across sometimes as so weak, but whenever we're able to give witness to Jesus, there's just such an incredible joy. Where once the joy that you got was just by your own personal accomplishments, whether in business or sports. I mean, there's still a joy in that. But the greater joy is when you do those things in a way that you know please the Lord. You run your business in a way that honors God, not just get yourself ahead. I could just go on and on and on about this, but I, I think you get the point. You'll know you're a true believer when you begin to see Jesus actually changing your life, as he puts it, bearing fruit. You'll long to please him. You'll want to keep his commands. Which brings me to the last point. I better get there quickly. Um, because th there's one command that's at the center of them all. And that's what he brings us back to in verse 12. Evidence number three, a deepening love. A deepening love for people. 
True believers grow in loving as Jesus loved. So verse 12, okay, keep my commands. Now my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He's speaking specifically about the love of brothers and sisters in Christ. If you read it through, you'll see that. We are to love all people because God does and all people bear the image of God and we should see that. But there is a specific love that's going to begin growing to be with other people who love Jesus. It's just always going to happen. And you can know you're alive when that happens, even when people don't seem to be all that, all that lovely. I, I think you can understand this. Um, men, if, you love, if we love sports, we love to be with people who love sports, right? It's really fun to get together and talk with them, especially the sport that we really love. The thing that we love will knit us together to other people who love similar things. If you love cars, just love to be with other people who love cars. Women have loves too, I've been told. So, throw that in just to make sure you're awake. But it is true. So, here's what happens when Jesus becomes the central love of your life. Then the people, other people who love him, you'll love to be with them. And if you come to Lake Avenue Church and says, boy, that's a hard bunch to love. And to let you know, Pastor, you're not all that easy yourself. Um, I just tell you, the love of Jesus who loved us across those things that divided us while we were sinners. Romans 5.8 Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. Hallelujah. This is amazing. That's the kind of love that begins developing. And, and here Jesus puts it even more beautiful. Greater love has no human being than this, than that, than that you lay down your life for a friend and you are my friends. So across the lines of sin, he has loved us even while we were very unlovely. And the same thing is true. What happens is, and I, this has happened my whole life, I love to be with God's people anywhere in the world. And so uh, uh, it might have used to be, well, I want to go to church because I like this style that they have or the way that they do things or I like the way this person speaks. But eventually you get to the point that that doesn't really matter. If God's word is opened... And, and we're talking about Jesus. Ah, you come alive. And, and the songs that are sung, the songs that are played, you'll say, well, that, that's not my style, but look over there. My brother or sister really loves that. I don't know how, but they really love that. And, and the biggest thing is that you just get to sing in with, with your brothers and sisters. I've had so many people who tell me, well, I, I love Jesus, but Christians, I don't, I don't love Christians. You know what I always say. You're going to hate heaven. There are quite a few of us there. Uh, so... And, and this beautiful work that all of us need of him transforming us until we become conformed to the image of Christ and fully bear fruit is this great, great promise that we have. John himself spoke about this much more directly and forcefully than I ever do. It's found in 1 John chapter 4. I'll just read you his words. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And it's because every human being bears God's image. How can we say that we, don't, that we hate someone who bears the image of the very one who came and gave his life for us? Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother is a liar. For whoever does not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And Jesus has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So I, I'm just telling you one of the surest signs that your relationship with Jesus is real 
is that you're going to begin loving more and more other people who love Jesus. The love of shared things draws us together. You'll want to worship with us. You'll want to serve with us. When I open this word, if I'll just preach the Bible, your heart will soar and you're going to want other people that you care about to experience the love of God among his people. And you're going to invite them to become a part. Well, we need to go to communion, but let me close this way. I went back to my notes that I took that day that I visited Bill as a young pastor, and I'm sure the way I remember it, I wasn't as good as it's going to come across right now, so take that with a grain of salt. But I did make note of this. As a 20, early 20-something-year-old pastor, I said, Bill, Jesus tells us that a sure sign that you belong to him is that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I have watched you over these years. You have had such a deep love for your family. He loved the children and the young people of our church. He was in his 80s. He, he had such a love. And I said, Bill, do, do you love the people of God? And he said, Pastor, I do. I love my church. And then I remember saying to him, even today, Bill, as you've spoken to me, the, the thing that troubles you the most is that you have things in your life that don't please him. You're troubled in your conscience. You're convicted by God's spirit about the sins in your life that displease him. And you've confessed those. He did. He took time to do that. Confess those. Told me how much you long for cleansing and transformation. And he said, I have. I said, do you trust his promise that he's faithful and just and will forgive you? And cleanse you from all that's not right. He says, I do. I want to live for him. Then, I said, Bill, I have but one question. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And he said, I remember with such a joy, I do. He said, I do believe. And I reminded him using the same verse that I use here all the time. Remember, Bill, God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son who gave his life that whoever believes, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Took him on up in the Gospel of John in which Jesus uh, would, would say to us, he who lives and believes in me, though he may die, will never die. A few days later, he did die physically. But I know I'm going to see that brother again. And I pray he knew the confidence and peace that comes from one who believes on the Lord Jesus. I pray the same for you.